First of all, happy Easter to you all. And I want to begin by making two fairly obvious statements. The first statement is Christ is risen. And that's what we celebrate today. The second statement is we live in an extremely anxious society. Edwin Friedman was an author and a family therapist with decades of experience. And he wrote a great book called A Failure of Nerve, a Nerve Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. And I would personally uh, encourage you to read that. It's a it's somewhat dense read, but it's really good. But this book was almost done when he died in 1996. His family published the incomplete manuscript in 2007. And in his book, remember it's nearly 25 years ago, Friedman said that America was a regressive society emotionally. What he was saying is that Americans progressively have less and less ability to handle change in their lives because as a society, we're less and less emotionally mature. Now keep in mind, this was his assessment from the mid 1990s. And what Friedman was pointing out was that as a society, we're continually becoming more and more anxious. Murray Bowen was a psychiatrist and a professor back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he also said that America is an emotionally regressive society. So this has been the case for a while. He was deeply involved in family therapy, and he discovered something about human behavior that has changed how people look at emotional health. He discovered, among a, a number of other things, first of all, that families function as emotional units. And secondly, that anxiety is contagious. So anxiety travels across the family system, causing the people in the system to react in different ways. Today, we call his work family systems theory. What we've learned is that not only do families function as emotional units, any group of people function as an emotional unit. This call is an emotional unit with all the same principles in play. Every group you're a part of functions this way. And anxiety is contagious in all of them. Fast forward to the advent of 24-hour news outlets and social media. And you have a constant transmission of anxiety all across the country. We live in a society that has become less and less capable of handling change well and more and more reactive to anxiety. Well, many of us are already aware of that. I've had so many conversations with so many people who share that they personally experience anxiety, sometimes to a crippling degree, and that's probably some of you on this call. And all of this was true before COVID hit the airwaves of, you know, in full force a month ago. This outbreak has caused people's anxiety levels to skyrocket. As some of the anxiety comes from the uncertainty around jobs and finances, but a lot of the anxiety comes from the fear of death. We don't know what to do with it. We live in a society that tries to avoid considering the reality that we will all die. In very short order though, the reality of our mortality has been forced in front of all of our faces. We can't escape it right now. But the big question you may be asking to yourself right now is what has this all got to do with Easter? 
I came to Easter looking for a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, and all we're talking about is anxiety. Here's the point. The hope that the resurrection of Jesus gives is that we too will be resurrected. Fear of death comes when you believe that death is the end, but the Christian hope is that for those in Christ, our life does not end. And the impact of that reality should be felt here and now. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, and I'll give you just a second to get to verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12, and here's what we read. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he was raised from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I want to make two observations from this passage today. The first observation comes out of verses 17 to 19, and it's this, true Christian faith is utterly dependent on the resurrection of Jesus. It's utterly dependent. Paul's point in this whole section is that the resurrection is not just some add-on doctrine that you can take or leave. It's like the one thread in the sweater that if you pull it, it all comes unraveled. If you remove the resurrection of Jesus, whatever else you have, you don't have Christian faith. So often I hear gospel presentations where the primary thrust of it is that Jesus died for your sins so that you could be saved. And that's certainly part of it. Don't hear me wrong. It's even part of what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 15 here. But that's not all of it. Paul says here that if the resurrection didn't happen, you are still in your sins. Not only did Jesus die for your sins, Jesus was resurrected for your sin. You can't separate them as if somehow the death of Christ without the resurrection was enough. Another thing I hear from time to time is a gospel that says, just believe in Jesus now. Because if you're right, you'll be saved. And even if you're wrong, you'll still be a better person in the end. Friends, this is not the gospel. Paul calls that kind of faith pitiful. Here's the deal. Every bit of the hope of Christianity hinges on the actual, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. It's not just a nice thought. It's not just a spiritual resurrection. It's not just a nice story with life-giving principles in it. The claim of Christianity 
The absolute hope of the Christian is that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. This is the first observation that true Christian faith is utterly dependent on the resurrection of Jesus. The second observation that I want to make out of verse 20 is this, that true Christian hope is that because Jesus was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. One of the prevalent things in American Christianity is this idea that the Christian hope is that when we die, we will leave our decaying body here in a hole in the dirt and our soul will go off to a disembodied heaven. But this is not the Christian hope that the Bible talks about. Now stick with me here if that struck a nerve for you. The Christian hope is that because Jesus was bodily resurrected, we who hope in him will also be bodily resurrected. This is what Paul's talking about in verse 20 when he calls Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits are the fruits that you get before the harvest. It's the early taste of what's to come. And Paul says the whole resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of the whole uh, resurrection to come. He also uses this phrase, those who have fallen asleep, twice in three verses. And there's biblical evidence that those who are in Christ, who die before Jesus returns, go to be with Jesus who is in heaven. Let me give you a couple examples. Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, when he's considering his death, that he would rather depart and be with Christ. Meaning that if he dies, he believes that he will be with Jesus in heaven. In Luke's account of the crucifixion, Jesus tells the criminal on the cross that today he would be with him in paradise. So it would seem that those who die in Christ do go to heaven, but that's not the end of the story. You see, the narrative of the whole of Scripture points further than going to heaven when we die. It points to the final hope as bodily resurrection within the new creation. That's how Revelation ends. It's not humans going up to heaven, but heaven coming down to earth in a complete restoration. In Genesis, sin broke the reality that God dwelt among his people. In Revelation, God returns to dwell again among his people. This is the hope. If you're interested, I'd like to recommend books. If you're interested in a good book on this that goes into much greater detail, I would recommend to you Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. There's a story from the early church in the third century when a plague broke out. The plague affected both Christians and non-Christians. And at its height, about 5,000 people a day were dying. Among the non-Christians, people were abandoning their loved ones and avoiding all those who were suffering in order to protect themselves. They were selfish. But the real story that came out of the plague was that the Christians took care not only of their own, but they took care of the non-Christians as well, often at the cost of their own lives. It was such a big deal that a hundred years later, out of embarrassment, the Emperor Julian tried to to slow the growth of Christianity by creating uh, societies and and, and pagan charities that would match the care provided by the Christians. They were embarrassed. But all of these pagan charities failed because they had no substance to their care, no doctrine to back it up. Centuries later, in the 1500s, Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the 
Protestant Reformation, uh, was writing to another pastor in Germany on how Christians were to respond yet to another plague. And here was his counsel. I'm going to read this specifically. It says, I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to not become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I've done what he has expected of me. And so I'm not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. And here's the key. Here's what he says. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. What causes people to do that? What causes people to care for the sick and dying at the cost of their own lives? I mean, we have this in front of our own faces right now. What causes someone to give of their own life for the sake of someone else? A part of it could be the high value that Christians put on life. But certainly so much of it happens because of a crystal clear understanding that the Christian hope is that we too will be raised from the dead. When you know that the bodily life you live now is not the only bodily life you get, you no longer have to fear death. And when death is no longer something to fear, you are truly free to live the life Jesus calls you to live. You can lay down your life. You can take up your cross and lay down your life. But of course, this whole thing depends on whether or not Jesus was resurrected. I mean, how can we know that Jesus was resurrected? There's been a lot of study and a lot of scholarship invested in the resurrection of Jesus. And I'd be happy to point you to any of those uh, resources. But let me just make two, two statements that point to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. First, one thing nearly all scholars agree on is that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Second, many people saw and interacted with the resurrected Jesus. So how do these statements give me hope that Jesus was raised? Here's how. If the tomb of Jesus was just empty, but nobody saw him or interacted with him, we could probably assume the body was stolen. And, you know, maybe they buried it somewhere else or, or, or hid it away. This was the story the Romans were paid to circulate. On the other hand, if the tomb wasn't empty, but people saw him, we would probably say that it was a hallucination. And this is another popular theory, is that oh, they, they were just hallucinating when they said they saw Jesus. But when you hold these two things together, the empty tomb on the one hand and interactions with people, we can make only one logical conclusion. Jesus was raised from the dead. And what that means is that you can trust Jesus with your life, knowing that even if you die bodily, your life will not end. This is good news. And knowing that, regardless of what happens to you in your life here, the resurrection of Jesus promises that you too will be resurrected into a body that is not subject to decay, not subject to death, depression, fear, or anxiety. And this should make an impact on the anxiety that you feel in your life now. 
Can you imagine what society would look like if we who follow Jesus really get a grasp on what the resurrection means? It looks like Christians being non-anxious presences in every space they inhabit. And perhaps we could be the salt that prevents the continual decay into anxiety that marks our society. Maybe we could be people through whom God would reach and transform a nation. Can you imagine that? What I want to do now is I want to pray that God would break into the anxiety in every area of your life. And if you're comfortable, you you can just sit in a posture of just receiving. I'm just going to pray that God would break anxiety. Holy Spirit, we, we recognize that you are here moving among us, and God, that you desire us to be people who are free from anxiety, that your resurrection sets us free from anxiety. And so right now, in this time and in this space, I break anxiety in the name of Jesus. We command anxiety to let go and to leave in the name of Jesus. God, I pray that you would fill those spaces where we have anxiety. God, would you fill them with the truth of your resurrection? And would you fill them with the hope that we have for resurrection? In Jesus' name, amen.